Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Dean Prebetic, a facilitator out of Melbourne, Australia. How's it going, Dean? Good, thank you, Brett, and well done on the Senate. Eh? Uh, that was really good. That's probably better than the way I pronounce it. <laughs> I've, I've been trying. It, it seems it, the pronunciation of your name is uh, non-intuitive for me. Like it, it looks like Prebetic or Prebetic. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's what's been in my head because you've been around for a while. I've seen your name pop up. Yeah. So I'm, I'm yeah, working it's, to reverse it. it. It's, there's no canonical pronunciation. Um, <laughs> my brother actually pronounces it pribetic. Um, and my, yeah, some people call me privetic, which is the Croatian pronunciation. Um, yeah. And then and, and lots of variants in between. There's a, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of letters in there. Pribetic does sound like a medical condition, though. Yeah, 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 that's, uh, I've heard that one. Um, that gets, <laughs> that's pretty common. So. <laughs> yeah. so, okay, facilitator is a pretty general term. What is it that you do? Yeah, so, um, uh, so I plan and facilitate, I'd call them design-based workshops for large groups. Um, so when I say large groups, is usually between uh, 30 to 100 people. Um, most of my clients would be big companies, so companies of you know several thousand or you know, tens of thousands of people. Um, but sometimes uh, we'll have industry groups. I've worked with um, uh, groups that have been you know in events where there's competitors actually having to design stuff together, which occasionally happens. Um, and uh, so big organisations, um, you know, from the outside you can look at a big organisation and think, well. They make decisions, they seem to um, produce stuff, but sometimes you can see the, where the fractures are, where the decisions don't quite line up. And you, know, you may find yourself asking, why has they've done this when they, and they've also done that? Um, and it's because big companies aren't aligned. They're um, fractured and there's, you know, there's politics and there's interest groups and there's um, lobbying and there's um, just lacks, lack of communication. Um, so the work I do is helping them work through that stuff and actually make decisions um, together uh, as as um, cohesive as they can. Okay. So uh, under what circumstances would a company generally hire you? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so if they've got a problem that I would say that probably the number one is when it's political. Uh, usually the rational stuff is easier to figure out. Like what rational I mean, like what, what is the right thing to do? But if there's a lot of politics involved and they can't get through that, they can't find someone to go and break that deadlock, which is, is pretty common in, in a lot of organizations, that's when they would normally call someone like me or, or you know, um, a facilitator who does this type of work to help them scope that out and, and work through it. So you, you also function as kind of a mediator, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say mediate. I'll talk a little bit about the design process. Um, and that's, you know, when I was uh, getting insurance, that's what they asked is, is it mediation? And, uh, I think the difference is I don't do a lot of the, um, when I think of mediation, I'm thinking that it's like, I'm here and saying, I hear you're saying this and you're saying that. And I think it's less structured than that. Uh, I'm more like, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to dip into chemistry for a second. Uh, so a catalyst, so a surface where two you know, elements can come together and have a chemical reaction. Yeah, that's what I think. That's how I see myself and the and the work of my team um, is 
They will come to we, – we are the surface. It helps this group come together and have a reaction. And then we disappear, and they go, and now they are a different thing. Yeah. So I'm playing dumb a little bit. I have a, a very good friend who uh, is a facilitator. And, okay. Um, and she does exactly what you're talking about, and she provides basically the surface, the environment, for people yeah. to kind of figure things out. You know, like she's not mediating. She yep. is. She's providing. She's she's facilitating. Like the word is actually a very apt description. Um. So you're working for large companies, which I think everyone has experienced in some way how politics cause friction in their ability to, but make make decisions both internally and externally. Uh, what kind of you do uh, like workshops? So you've got 30, yep. 30 to 100 people, you said. Yep. Uh, what kind of uh, uh, program do these follow? Well, I'll talk a little bit about... Um, so it is politics that people are sort of like trying to you know, consolidate power or trying to you know, get their view across. Um, I think the other reason that organizations can struggle is language. That in a big organization, people throw terms about and... They won't. That we're all using the same words, but they mean different things, or we're not appreciating the nuance of those those terms. So there's um, the, that gets in the way as well. To be fair, but that's the, been my problem understanding most Australians in general. So, oh yeah, okay. Just yeah, a lot of. Uh, please continue. Actually, I should say if I if I use any uh, corporate jargon, please call me on it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, again, say so that doesn't make any sense. It's not a real word. We'll put a pin in it and circle back around. It'll be fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> So the process I work in uh, was actually developed in, um, I think, mostly in uh, Boulder, Colorado, during the 70s and 80s, um, by uh, a couple, uh, a married, like a, part, a husband and wife uh, named Matt and Gail Taylor. Um, and Matt's an architect, and Gail is a teacher or an educator. And um, they met, um, and uh, they sort of... They they observe the same things that uh, I mentioned earlier, but the way organizations make decisions. And they developed this methodology. It kind of emerged from their conversations and them just working in it, um, combining their different strengths. So um, a, lot of the, a lot of the process stuff draws from the education background. A lot of the aesthetics of the sessions I run uh, draws from architecture, from Matt's background as an architect. And uh, together, those things create an environment that allow people to make decisions and uh, find agreement. Um, so I talk a little bit about the process, and please stop me um, if you have any questions. So typically in a session, um, it'll have three phases. Um, uh, and uh, just to simplify it, imagine the session runs for three days, so each day is a phase. Uh, so people come together. Day one is going to be called scan. Uh, day two is focus, and day three is act. Uh, so the scan day is all about education before they go and make any decisions. Oh, what I'm trying to do, what my team is trying to do is to get the group to just let's lay all the information out. Let's, let's collect, create a shared understanding of what we already know. And that isn't just the work that has gone before, but it's also things like what other, what other systems are like the problem we're struggling with? So that, can, that, that doesn't have to be business systems. So you can say things like, um, we're all trying to collectively, um, we're trying to collectively build something together, but none of us really own it. What system is like that? And you can look at things like, and we've done this before, say, let's look at what, how bees work or how ants work in, a, you know, in an ant colony. 
and what can we learn from that system, from the natural system? Um, we also get them to look at their own patterns of behavior. So organizations like people have just sort of inbuilt patterns they don't really even see. So we find what we run um, activities, which call on modules, to help them see in a safe way how they behave. And then they can, once they appreciate that, then they can, then they can move to the next step. Uh, so that's scan. Uh, some people find that really frustrating um, because you don't make any decisions, you're just learning. Um, and a lot of what we're doing in scan, and it continues through the later phases, uh, is the way to get past the politics is to depersonalize it. So if you and I are disagreeing about a, a way of doing something in a business, then it can become me versus you. Uh, by having a facilitator there, um, we can make it that it is now just you and I looking at a problem rather than my problem or your problem. And so that's what SCAN is starting to set up. Uh, second phase is focus. Um, focus is all build and test. So how about if we did it this way? What would happen? What are the implications of that? Um, throughout this, if we said we said 70 or 80 people in a session, each time we change the activity, ask that question again, we'll change the teams. So again, reinforcing the idea of this isn't my idea or your idea. This is just an idea we're playing with. We're just sort of trying to see if it works. Continuing that in a healthy way, depersonalizing it just to make it a design problem that a group is now working on. Uh, so focus is that. So three or four rounds of them just build, test, what, do, what works for that, what doesn't work. Uh, by the end of that, the group is starting to get generally pretty frustrated as they um, start to see where the, where the real breaks are. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this in big companies, but people often just say they'll, they'll try to minimize the effort or they'll, they'll try to take the emotion out of a conversation and just make it about the business. So they'll, um, you know, we just need to get on with this, that sort of language. And um, there's genuine reasons they can't, and some of those reasons are emotional. So I, want to, I don't want to surface them in a way that is just people screaming at each other. Um, but we, so the focus is iteration, you are making progress on the ideas, but you are also, uh, you, I am also helping them reveal the emotions behind it. So by the end of focus, end of day two, two thirds of the way through the process, I've asked this question often, um, where are we uh, in terms of the work? And people say 10%, 15%, we're no, nowhere near where we need to be. Um, that's pretty typical. Um, it is a low point in the event emotionally. Uh, we work with a team to plan the event, like a team from the client to plan the event, and they're usually very nervous at that time and say things <laughs> like, "In this better work. Um, I actually did an event once where um, uh, there were some issues. It was some industrial relations issues, so some union stuff going on, union versus management stuff. Yeah. And um, the, so they, they were having this natural low point anyway at the end of day two. In the morning of day three, there was an article about the session in the front page of the newspaper, which is a pretty big newspaper um, in the state that it was in, uh, saying how these executives were off-site, um, wasting the, you know, wasting the, because of the government thing, wasting taxpayer money on this stuff. Um, <laughs> so it was, added some extra crunchiness to the, to the morning. Um, so the third phase, ACT, is um, 
Scan and Focus are designed for every session. So those are uh, I, I and my team will design those and we will facilitate them. And uh, then the start of day three uh, starts with what's called synthesis conversation. Put the pe- put all the people in a circle and ask this question about, you know, we came here to achieve this this thing. We've been here for two days. Uh, is there anything we need to talk about before we you know, before we keep going? And I then step out of that circle, and there's this um, super awkward silence. And um, someone makes a kumbaya joke, and uh, yeah, that's them trying to rescue the group from what they're feeling. And uh, then the silence returns, and everyone kind of looks around. Everyone looks at the who's the most senior person in the room, and that person is often coached to just you know just to be quiet, just to, to create a bit of a space for people. And then they start having the conversation. And the conversation can be 20 minutes. It can be four hours. Um, I've been in a four-hour conversation. I've been in a five-hour conversation. Um, it goes as long as it needs to. Um, and that is a little bit of a leap of faith. But if scan and focus have gone well, we've got them to a point to have that conversation where they actually can transition from, hey, this was one or two people's problem to now this is our collective problem. And they, they start to feel that ownership for it. Uh, and also, there's this, there's this inflection point in that conversation where I can sense the group starting to uh, get excited. They, they're usually at this low point. They come to, this won't work, this is too hard. And it usually gets to the point of, well, hang on, we're the people in this organization or in this, you know, in this industry who can actually make this change. No one else can do it for us. And that's, that's really what the, the facilitation style I work in is trying to get to, is that moment. Because then they can go and then I ask them, okay, given, the, given where we are, what is the work we need to do? So I have no plan. Uh, I ask them and then they tell me. And they sort of identify, we need to work on this, we need to work on that, we need to work on whatever. Uh, and then they, they will then volunteer to work on various parts of it and then they move into that phase. So the, they sit, the night before they sit about 10% of the way there, they do 90% of the work, the actual what they came there to do in the last third of it. This is what I really like about what you're explaining is your job is to turn whatever issue they're having into a problem for them to solve. So really, your goal, you facilitate them solving their own problem and you put them to work, but they can't do it without someone from the outside with an external perspective and, and obviously some experience to be able to reframe the issue so that they can yeah. then work on it. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I, I call myself a neutral facilitator. I don't have an opinion about like what they should do. I have an opinion about how, the sorts of conversations. Are there non-neutral have, but... facilitators? That seems, well, I guess, I, I guess I'm non-neutral in the sense of, um, I have, I'm strongly opinionated about, uh, why they can't ha- have this conversation. But most of the, most of the topics I speak about, I don't have any expertise in. So, um, and I think it often feels, hmm, I don't know, you know, if I'm working with a, um, you know, a bank, I, I, I'm a customer of a bank, but I don't have any opinion on how to, they can make a decision internally, usually because they're talking about products or, you know, things I don't understand. Um, like, I understand the, the nature of them, but I don't understand the specifics. Yeah. So, and I'm just, just to provide a, um, I'll give you an example, um, we one of the activities we'll do often in scan is uh, we call it chat rooms. So there's you know a bunch of pre- there's a bunch of work that's gone before the session, 
so you know hey, we've got this plan or we've done this research and um we've got sort of four or five pieces of information we want to share with a group and so in the absence of someone like me um you may go well what we're going to have a series of presentations to the group uh <laughs> And you know, so you're going to have like, what, like four presentations to a group of 70 people sitting down. They're going to fall asleep or they're going to get on their phones. Um, actually, in most of our sessions, we de-phone people. Um, and that's a, that is one of the, you know, you can deal with a group of senior executives and that's the thing they stress about the most is that, hang on, I'm not going to have my phone with me. And they, they really want to know where they're going to be. And um, and sometimes we've had people sneak a second phone in. but. Um, <laughs> I would. Being in a five-hour conversation without a phone, I would die. Yeah, so, yeah, it can. Look, I've, I've been, I admit that um, I find it hard as well, <laughs> especially in 2017. It was early, it was easier in 2003 um, when people were less connected to their phones. Um, so we will then take the, we will do, uh, we'll say instead of having like the, the four conversations um, one after another, why don't we break the group up into you know four parts and actually you have the presenter do it four times, but they, the group rotates or they move around. So then they get up every 20 minutes and move. So then they uh, keeps the energy up. At the end of that conversation, and I'd, I've sort of skimmed across them, but I haven't been in any of them. I just say, what are we here? And I'm just reflecting back what the group, what, what, it pays, what the group has paid attention to. I suppose that's the uh, that's the important part. Yeah. So I don't. I don't. And yeah, I, I think I try to not be uh, cognizant of who the most senior person in the room. Sometimes I genuinely don't know, um, <laughs> which is always fun because uh, then I can say a thing and everyone can kind of look at their shoes and go, "Oh my god, I can't believe you just said that." Um, <laughs> but I I've said it because I don't know. <laughs> just. A, yeah, and that's what I want to do is take it away from being, you know, I'm this, I want to be the senior blah, 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 to just, hey, we're a group of people, we're a group of concerned citizens just trying to solve a problem together. That, yeah, that, when, is, that is how you remove the politics from a situation is to remove the hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also to get them to um, get them to kind of understand, like, what their problem looks like. Uh, I actually studied computer science Um back before I uh, did this. And I was working as a programmer when I started doing this. And, you know, one of the things that struck me about programming is, you know, you take this, someone mentioned that like, you're modeling an idea and um, groups will, like organizations are doing the same thing when they think about how they solve a problem. They just don't, they just don't call it that. They don't think about it as modeling ideas. Um, and I think that's where some of the politics can hide in that space. So if if they go and if we if I shift them from going to, you know, this is what I think we should do to let's just look at this idea as a as a thing that we're playing with and a, and then that means we can move past it. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I want to get back to kind of uh, methods and tools, but mm-hmm. I have a burning question. Yeah. Most of the facilitators that I know and know of are uh, very intuitive people. Whereas yeah. most of the computer science people that I know, programmers and coders, are more logic based, what? Where do you fall? Uh, good question. Um, you mean by intuitive, saying I'll go with my gut on this? Yeah, or? kind of. Uh, well, feelings based yeah. and able to easily interpret 
other people's feelings and you know the opposite of like an Asperger's person. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, I would say that I am slightly on the logic side. <laughs> I guess it depends on who you ask, but um, I yeah, when I started doing this, um, I was attracted to the work because um, because of that neutrality expert uh, aspect, uh, but I was. I'd certainly had to cultivate um, a sense of intuition. In fact, one of the one of my colleagues in this work, he uh, he was telling me a story when he started that um, Gail, um, who's one of the founders of it, one of the people who developed it, um, he was sort of training with her, and um, she said, "Oh, I think the group's ready to move on to the next phase of work or the next the next activity." And uh, he said, oh, "How do you know that?" And she said. Um, well, you can just feel it, can't you? You can just feel what the group's where the group is. And um, <laughs> he was like, "No, I need to know how do you feel that? <laughs> like, what are the rules for feeling that?" And Quantify as that. He was, and uh, I, we, we will like he's a very he's much more experienced than I am. And um, I've been doing the work for about ten years at this stage, so I I, I recognise that moment. But now I can with the group sense. Yeah, I have that feeling of I think they're ready to move, or I think they're getting bored, or I think they're they're. Um, the energy is starting to dissipate, so we need to do something to bring it back together. Uh, so, but I, I absolutely think I've cultivated that. Sure, and I'm actually I'm I'm quite fascinated that you have because it is it's something I'm jealous of. I tend to be very logic based, but also I I'm a, a passionate and uh, I feel a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't necessarily interpret other people's feelings correctly ever uh, so when oh, i watch I, I think you i think you're better than you might think um based on you know years <laughs> of listening to your show um i hear that on occasion as well but i I've, I've cultivated a certain amount of being able to uh do what you're talking about and 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 sense a feeling in a group or a room but it's it's something that i have to do through data like i have to pick up on things and and use a cultivated <laughs> cultivated by the number of mistakes I've made by you know a long series of misjudging situations mm-hmm. uh, but I have learned you know how to recognize these things without necessarily intuiting it uh, yeah okay, I, I, okay. It's, it's it's actually it's very comforting to me to hear someone who you know has a more coder personality a more uh, logic personality being able to to function in that realm i mean everyone everyone has capabilities beyond you know their primary function i'm certain but you know that's that's very cool okay so tools uh yes i want to i want to know like when you're in the scanning mode i'm picturing people just like raising their hand and tossing out you know uh ideas problems whatever how are you uh, collecting, showing, uh, taking, even like uh, uh, absorbing all of this? Okay, um, and uh, this is where we're going to get into some of the um, architectural aspects. Um, and I mean that in the physical sense um, of a session. Uh, so uh, most of the most of the way we we um, we work. Um, and when people walk into a session, they're usually taken aback by 
this is this doesn't look what I was like like what I was expecting to look it to look like. In fact, I remember doing an event. Um, uh, this was a long time ago. This would be over ten years ago. Um, with a, a sporting league, and most of the well, it was a seventy-person session, and sixteen there were sixty-nine men um, and one woman, and most of the men had been uh, professional sportsmen uh, and were sort of big, big guys, and they walked in and they thought they were going into, uh, you know, sort of. It's going to be someone at the front. It's going to be a rows of chairs, what I would call theatre-style seating, um, and they were going to have an argument, like a um, political town hall type situation. And they walked in, and they, some of them looked around, like looked at the lift and looked at their invitation, saying, "Am I in the right place?" Because this looks like this looks like a Montessori school, um, which is what like, it genuinely does look like. That um, <laughs> lots of colour, lots of light, um, but so so. The they come in. They've got we've got um, we call them work walls. Uh, they're pretty big. Uh, this is part of uh, what Matt designed. Is these walls that are that you know they're taller than a six foot man, and they're about sort of I guess they're about eight feet wide. I'd say, um, and there's various sizes, but uh, that's kind of the, this is what's called a standard double panel because it's got two panels on it. The panels themselves are magnetic. They look a little bit a little bit like uh, whiteboards, but they're grey. So they go from just above your ankles to above your head. They're really heavy. They're surrounded in wood. Um, and from that, we – and they're on wheels, so we construct this. We build a space out of that. So there is, a, there is some theatre-style seating. Um, we call that uh, – that space is often called uh, the Radiant Room. Um, Matt is a, a big fan of uh, science fiction, and um, some of the language has been borrowed from science fiction. Mm. Uh, the Radiant Room is – I think it's um, – I think it's Asimov foundation series was that arthur c clark um i don't know one of those um but in the in the in the in the foundation series there's a story about there's this idea of the radiant room being the uh in this science fiction story uh there's, there's the statisticians of the time have been so um their methods are so complicated and so um sophisticated that they can predict the future really accurately and so the Radiant Room is a place where they can sort of run their models and they can see that. And so that's why it's called the Radiant Room because it's a place where you're building your future. But the Asimov. Radiant Room... I, sorry, I had to Google it while you were talking. Right. Yeah, yeah okay. So uh, that's where that, that term's from. But most of the time, that, that, that space... And when I say room, it isn't a room. It's just a, it's just a, a space built within a bigger space is only really used for um, sharing the work. So the work actually happens in breakouts. So we, we can make, uh, we divide the rest of the space into, into smaller areas that usually have six to eight people. So the way most of the work happens is uh, there'll be a little bit of intro. We're going to go and do a thing. Um, and then uh, that we'll put up some team lists. So this is who's working where, and that changes all the time. This is, again, one of those ways to to take the ideas away from being from a personal idea to just an idea and say, and this is where you're going. And each of the breakouts will give a name. Um, and usually that name is based on some theme for the event. Um, and there's a bunch of themes that usually come up like this event, this trying to solve this problem is like climbing a mountain um, or it's like trying to unlock a, unlock a padlock or something. Uh, and when they get to the, when they get to the uh, breakout, there's the inst- there's no facilitator in the breakout. There's a set of instructions written on a wall. So the first time that happens, the group will go to that wall, 
there'll be you know, eight people in there. They know each other, maybe not at all. Maybe they know each other reasonably well. Or maybe they sort of know of each other. It's probably the most common situation. Uh, no, And there's no instruction beyond, you see a set of instructions on the wall. And so they sort of look at it and someone will grab it. And they'll start saying, I think we're supposed to do this. Then no one really questions where did this come from. Um, <laughs> it's just the writing on the wall. Yeah. And then they, <laughs> then, then they start working in that. Um, so in that scan phase, it may be you need to, in the next hour, uh, there's a, a series of articles or books or videos, is to learn as much as you can about um, uh, complex adaptive systems. Uh, a complex adaptive system is things like... Um, you know how birds flock together? Yeah. Yeah, so that's an example of that where there's no um there's no like lead bird, but they all have different roles and they all kind of just they they have little si- si- uh, signals they give each other to go and move in certain directions. Yet no uh, external discernible pattern to it. Yeah, exactly. Um but you watch them and say how do they do that? Or schools of fish is the other example that does that. And these 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 um examples happen in nature. So they read that um and then there'll be a series of questions. They'll say, like, what did, what did you learn in reading that? And they talk about here's, the, here's what we saw as the rules for that type of system. And then uh, come back to the radiant room and say, let's share what we learned. Um, and that's, that's usually the pattern is go to a breakout, do some work, come back, share that work. And so my role in that, I say, even though I'm the facilitator, most of what I'm doing is just giving them instructions of where to go. Uh, and when they come back, I may go, if we look across this work, what are we seeing? Um, and so in that way, it's, 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 you know, in some ways it's, it's actually pretty easy. Uh, the hard bit is the intuitive bit is saying, what does the group need right now? Do they need me to be upbeat? Do they need me to be um, serious and reflective? Do they need me to be uh, challenging? Um, and just sort of feeling what's going on for them uh, before we send them off. Um, in terms of, do you want to get into specific activities? So have some examples of things we may get them to do uh, in scan or any of those phases? I'm, I'm curious about, I guess it's methodology, but it's really about like what kind of tools are involved. Okay. Visual, so the visualization, I, I guess I'm like, for me, it's an overwhelm when you're dealing with that many people, it's an overwhelming amount of input and you're breaking them up. But yeah, how is this, how is all of the input, which is not necessarily you know, scientific data, how is this uh, collated and and used? Uh, okay, so um, I'll, there's sort of two big aspects to that. So I will, I will talk a little bit about more about the aesthetics. Uh, so I speaking about these walls, these big walls. Um, the space has been, uh, has been designed to um, be distraction-free um, within, within limits. So, so one, of the, uh, one of the axioms that people in this way of working will often say is everything speaks. So everything that's in the environment is there for a reason. Um, and if, we, if we're doing our job well, then um, they, the group won't even be aware of that, but it's just sort of happening because it's, everything there has been purposefully put there. Um, there is a crew that works on the event. So there's the participants, so there may be 70 or 80 of them, and then there is a team who is facilitating them. And not doing the stand at the front of the room and tell them what to do facilitation, but making sure they have everything they need. So there will be often there is a, a, a team or a person who is whose job it is is to, you know, they've worked in the um, with me and a smaller team leading up to actually 
gather the inputs and you know sort them and get them ready. And so when someone goes to a breakout, those inputs are just there because they've put the, the facilitation team member has put them there for them. Um, a good way to think of that team who are facilitating the group is they're like an operating system. Um, they are doing a lot of the low-level processing to allow the participants just to stay focused on the work. So things like... Um, uh, one of the things I think most people will, when they think about this work, who've seen it, is said there was someone who was standing behind the facilitator drawing on the wall, and they were drawing pictures. It was kind of like a mind map or more like a sketch note, but it wasn't. It wasn't really either of those things. And as we're talking, they're just drawing. And this is a person who has no interest in our convert, who in the topic. Of, they have no political or emotional investment. We're talking about. They're just reflecting what they're hearing and drawing. Um, and uh, I'll send you a couple links uh, to some people who do this work. And we call that scribing. Um, so that is, here's the group talking, here's someone scribing. It's a really powerful way to let people see see what they're talking about. Um, and again, it, it takes it away from being just, I'm just throwing ideas into the air to making it something concrete that then we can debate. Um, there was this uh, great example from, um, I was on this session, um, and this was um, even before my time where... Uh, a scribe was doing doing his thing. He's up the front of the room. He's drawing what he's hearing, um, and they, they're wonderful to watch. They're sort of um, hip, sort of mesmerizing in a way. And uh, the CEO of the company got up and pointed to what he had drawn on the wall and said, "That that that is what we're talking about." And uh, he sort of looked up like, "What? <laughs> that's that's what happened." Um, but it often happens. That's sort of. The drawing of a of an idea and um, the best scribes um, can be pretty whimsical with this. They can sort of they they're not just saying you know they hear a word model so they draw a model, or they they are playing with the ideas a bit. They're having fun with it, and that allows the group one to have fun with it and also um, helps make their debate concrete. Yeah, I I will say that like with the sketch note thing. Uh, Mike Rohde, the, the author of the Sketchnote books, was yeah. was on this podcast at least once, yeah. maybe twice. Um, uh, yeah. I really, uh, like, I am fascinated by the idea, and I, I think that that visual aspect of it does help me remember things, but it is way easier for me to watch someone else do it. I was at an event apart in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, when... Uh, that was the first time I saw someone sketch noting live. Okay, yeah. And then they would share, you know, the the sketch notes with the attendees, and it makes a lot of sense to me. It's not something I can do. Uh, like I don't. It's not how I take. I I can do visual like mind mapping. That mm. is how I take notes. But the idea of sketching out ideas is it's always eluded me. But absolutely see the value of having someone else do it, representing things that are happening in real time in slightly abstracted ways. Yeah, it's one of those things. If you see, um, so what we call that a scribe. Um, I, don't, I have no idea where that term came from, but it's just stuck. Um, if you see, and the scribe is both what they make and the person. Um, so they can make it yeah, just that extra bit confusing. Uh, but if you see a scribe and you weren't part of that conversation, it really means nothing. 
<laughs> and you can appreciate the oh that's beautifully beautiful images but i have no idea what this talks about sure but if you're yeah. there in that moment hearing it and seeing it getting made then um you yeah it does create that str- much much stronger memory in fact there was a for a while there there were these you know you'd see them on youtube these videos um where people are doing that with a voiceover as someone reads like a basically through a presentation yeah and someone's drawing as as you go um uh yeah they kind of rose and then the there was a i guess a meme and then it sort of disappeared but uh i still see it yeah okay yeah so uh, uh, like uh elizabeth warren uh she'll put out videos uh what's the i forget his name uh they're political. It's is a political guy, economist. Uh, but when he describes like this is what a bill means, he'll he'll have sketch notes right. as he's as he's talking. I find it very effective. Yeah, but you're right. And Without context, they they're basically meaningless. They're doodles. So I, I understand my uh, the history of where that came from um, was. Uh, I believe it was one of the early Matt and Gale events. Um, so we must have been talking like, like early 80s um, that they, they brought this team together. And so the people who do this kind of work are contractors. They work all over the place. Um, so they're freelancers. Uh, someone just got up and started drawing this conversation. I think they were just trying to clarify it for themselves. And everyone was like, wow, that's really, really powerful. And then I think it just became a thing that stuck around because of that. But it wasn't... It was never. It emerged. It was never decided that that's what we should do. Um, and in fact, a lot of this work has that. And a lot of the you mentioned, you know, what other specific activities? A lot of them have emerged just from. Why don't we try doing this thing um, and see what happens? Um, I mean, I've been I've been given assignments, and I've, I've I've given assignments for others to do. Where you give them, here is a, a sentence, and let's unpick that sentence and. What is this sentence telling us? And it seems like a weird thing to get a group of highly paid executives to do. But when they dive into those words, they start to find things they didn't necessarily agree on. Um, and uh, that's also very powerful. That's also it, very powerful. Are, are there people who don't get it? Are there who are not just resistant, but who don't think in that visual way and for whom that is actually an impediment to understanding? Um, yeah, I've worked, the hardest group I've worked with was a group of cardiac surgeons, um, who I was warned, said, you've never met people like cardiac surgeons. They are, I was like, oh, look, I've worked with everybody. I can do this. Everyone, everyone's the same. Um, and I was really struck at how resistant that as a group, most of the people there were. Um, and so you know what? What can I say about that group? Was that they were all um, very, very specialised, um, the very, very sort of particular set of skills um, in the Liam Neeson sense. Um, <laughs> they, yeah, so the very particular set of skills. They, um, they were like um, someone described them as like thoroughbred, um, you know, thoroughbred uh, horses. They do one thing and they do it extremely well. Um, and as a, and they were almost to the point of thus everything else in their lives they're kind of a bit worse at, um, and that includes relating to each other because they walk into most of the rooms they walk into they are absolutely one hundred percent in charge of that room because they walk into an operating theater they are now in charge yeah um, they walk into the the consult with the patient and they are in charge 
And so here's, an, here's a time when they're not in charge and they're actually giving a lot, of, a lot of control to me and they were not comfortable with that. I still can picture the, the way people sat. They were kind of um, bunched up, like <laughs> um, knees up against their chest, the arms wrapped around themselves, trying to make themselves almost like withdraw from the situation. So I think any group that has those aspects where they are – or um, look, I think it takes a lot for a, a CEO or someone like that to to um, be okay with this type of work, um, to give up that that sense of controlling the conversation, because that's what that's what I'm that's what I'm doing. I'm not really controlling the conversation, but I, I'm I'm not letting them control the conversation. I'm sure. letting the conversation. It's still structured, but it can feel like it's chaotic. Um, and actually, I say it takes a lot for a CEO to do that. A lot of CEOs, or most of the ones I've worked with, are happy to do that because they want their people to come. They they acknowledge that I can't know everything about this business. It's way too big and way too complicated. But I need people to stop deferring to me for everything. I need them to make some decisions together. So most of them are fine. In fact, middle management is probably the one that struggle the most. Yeah. All right. I'd like to take a second here and thank Smile Software and PDF Pen 9 for sponsoring this episode of Systematic. PDF Pen 9 is the ultimate tool for editing PDFs and going paperless. PDF Pen 9 packs over 100 enhancements to improve your PDF editing workflow, including an enhanced sidebar annotations view, more export options, a hand tool to pan and zoom, linking to other local PDF files, Find and highlight to bring attention to all appearances of a term, line numbering, which is great for legal documents, and even support for forms, which include calculations. PDF Pen Pro 9 enhances table of contents editing and adds OCR for Chinese, Japanese, and Korean. Learn more about PDF Pen at smilesoftware.com systematic. All right, well, real quick then, let's... Uh, so are you sketch noting uh, i'm sorry uh the scribes are working through the scanning phase yep how is That's this what most of their work how yeah. is this then focused prior to the action stage ah okay so um they've gone through the scan phase and it's learning um i guess the other thing i say about scan is um we often do uh we'd call them experiential activities so these are things where um they can often look like we're going to play like a a, a game but the game has a as a uh, it's just a vehicle for them to have a conversation about what they struggle with as a group. So uh, an example, um, uh, one of the activities we may do in there is if they were designing um, some software together, which you know, occasionally we do work like that. Um, the uh, We may get them to do an activity we call Masterpiece. So you take a piece of art. We'll, we'll take a piece of art that we'll find off the internet and then we'll print it big, so, you know, um, poster size uh cut it up give them all a piece uh give them some materials sometimes we'll give them different materials so someone may have paint someone may have pastels and say now uh recreate your piece of art um and so and they're in breakouts they are all in the same space but they're separated and then we they go through that exercise we put them together and say what do we what do we see in there um and Sometimes they go, well, we've made assumptions about color. We've made assumptions about what, what we're actually creating this thing in. Um, as you know, obviously we want the, when they join them together, they're supposed to all look like this. They're all supposed to look the same and fit. And when they don't, they can say, well, we're all in the same room. Why didn't we do that? 
And they go, hey, this is just like what happens at work. And they go, aha, yeah, that's right. Um, and that's, a, that's just a way for them to be able to have a conversation. So later on during the session, they can identify uh, when they get to a real problem involving their actual work, they can now say, this is just like that masterpiece thing we did, that painting thing we did, where we're not, we're not, uh, we're not agreeing on what the materials are. Um, so you know, we use that as a metaphor. Um, so in focus, um, uh, this is more straightforward. It is go out and design this thing. So um, if it was a piece of software, it may be go out and design the data model that underlies this. Um, if it's a, um, if it's about a, uh, a project, it may be, uh, go out and design the, uh, what you're going to do in, dis- in the discovery phase, or it may be, what are the governance processes or what's the, um, what are the, um, communications tools we're going to use to make sure that people stay aligned as we move through this. Uh, and then, but we separate the work. So then a small group will just go and do that. We're just going to go and do governance. And then when they come back and share the work with each other, uh, they start to see, well, that doesn't fit. Uh, so then we go and go and do it again. Um, but now we're going to have a different lens for it. Uh, another way we may, we may break up the work is uh, if they were designing something that is uh, for a customer, um, we may go, okay, you're going to have this stage of the customer life cycle. You're going to have this stage. So, you know, you're going to have uh, awareness. The next person's going to have uh, purchase. And then you have onboarding. Then you have use and support. And then you're going to have, you know, retirement. Uh, but, but by breaking it up, by breaking up the work, you start to see where those things fall apart. Uh, and every time we get them to share and come back, uh, we either get them to give each other feedback. Um, the mechanism we use for that is, we actually get them to write their feedback down, use it on post-it notes and stick it on the work um, uh, using color. So red is, I hate that idea, and this is why I hate it. Orange is uh, the passive-aggressive one, which is, this is idea might work, but it needs to change in this way. And that's, you know, most, of them, mo- most of them are orange. Yeah, I was, um, although, I was imagining. <laughs> uh, although someone said that in, in the US, uh, and I've never seen this because I've done a couple of US events, uh, is that red is the predominant color in the US. <laughs> like, I hate that. And green is, I really like that, and we need to, this is why I like it. Um, I, I'd be willing to bet that Minnesota, where I live, uh, would be still primarily orange. Oh, in Australia, it's all orange. <laughs> it's great, yeah. great idea, but have you considered? Um, and look, I sometimes even play with that because that's another way for them to go, we're not really being honest here. Um, and that 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 theme keeps coming up during sessions because, as I said, we want to get them to the point of that day three synthesis conversation of going, now we can have a proper conversation about this. Um, so, yeah, as I was saying in focus, it is those rounds. Do some work. Share it, either go and do something else that is related to it, work in a new team, or get some feedback and keep going. Um, with When they do that one where they give each other feedback, um, this is a way for them to get comfortable with that idea of giving feedback. Because uh, I think the other thing that happens in organizations is people are sort of professionally polite to each other. Um, and what I want to do is I want to get them to focus on the work. How do we make the work better? And that doesn't mean being mean to each other. It just means... We have to find ways to be able to give each other feedback and make and be healthy with it and be okay with it. Um, so yeah, it doesn't mean like, look, that that idea is terrible and you suck. Um, it's almost like, well, we need to, um, you know, here's how this idea can be better, and and 
when when an organization is doing that well, they can feel that that is in, this, in that spirit of trying to make the work better. And I imagine that companies who build beautiful products um, and successful products have more of that, where people can find ways to give each other feedback in positive ways. Have you ever seen the show The Magicians? Uh, no. It uh, There was an excellent review of it that said that The Magicians is, uh, to Harry Potter, what a shot of whiskey is to weak tea. Oh, yeah. Okay. So okay. there's this moment in the first season where in order to cast the spells they need to, they have to be emotionally basically void. So they, mm-hmm. they do a spell that literally bottles their emotions into flasks around their necks. Yep. And all of a sudden, once they've removed like each of their individual kind of uh, emotional defenses, they just start communicating clearly. They, they, uh, they say in uh, five seconds what it would have taken each individual character multiple episodes to actually share with someone or criticize someone for, and they're all open to receiving it. And I feel like that's the kind of environment that you're working toward with these techniques. That's pretty uh, cool. It, it actually, in in the series, it's a psychological it's a, trick, isn't it? Yeah, it's just uh, like hey, your emotions now in this thing, and you go, okay, I've put them there, and everyone's done it, so now we're in the, we're all we're all the same, right? It, it, um, you ha- it has to be an environment where you know everyone is at that same point, and I don't think that's you can't just cast a spell to get there, but if you can take people through a series of exercises that actually gets them to feeling like. Okay, I can be open now, and this person is open as well to receiving this. Then you can actually accomplish things way faster. Yeah, well, that to me sounds like yeah. So we what what part of the reason the environment looks like a, like a, a kindergarten, and part of the reason that um, you know we've got music playing and someone's drawing on the wall, and people people will make comments about this looks like a kindergarten is uh, safety. Emotional safety. This is a safe place for me to be able to say what I need to say uh, and not from that um, victim place of kind of, you're all, you know, it's more of a, hey, this is what I'm feeling and everyone sort of just acknowledging that. And uh, that sounds like that's what's going on in that show is that they're creating, the environment they're creating amongst that group is one of safety. Um, and uh, this this spell they cast in order to get put their emotions in a bottle sounds like the vehicle to do that. Yeah, I think if I tried that though with the group of executives, I reckon that's when I would have a revolt. Well, the the beauty of it in the show is when they put their emotions back into the individual, everything goes haywire. Like all of a sudden, everything's amplified, and it's uh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Buffy, Buffy times ten. It, it gets yeah, it's a. I actually got really hooked on that show and oh, yeah. considering paying to watch the second season right now, which is not normal for me. Um, <laughs> God, I, God, I miss Buffy. That was such a good show. If you liked Buffy, you should check out The Magicians. The first season is on Netflix. Oh, okay, cool. So anyway, okay. The, uh, this conversation could easily go on for way longer. Um, if, if you were going to wrap this up right now, Mm-hmm. And and move on to top three picks. What what would you? How would you summarize all of this? Um, like summarize the work I do, and um, I, I'm asking this as a, a cop out because I can't think of the question that's going to get us to some kind of resolution here. There's so much going on. 
let's 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 okay, ask. No, I think I think I think I can go there. I think I can I can sort of summarize it. Is All right that, then. Um, you know, when when people walk into into their business, and we work in business, and uh, people are working in their offices, and everyone's you know wearing their sort of whatever the corporate uniform is, there's this like little this little sort of thing we all agree to, which is, I won't be emotional or talk about emotions um, as long as you don't. It's like a sort of unwritten ground rule of every workplace is no one here's going to be emotional, and I, you know, this, I mean this in more of the sort of profit on the for profit sort of side, big businesses. And emotions are often seen as being um, uh, either weak or inappropriate in the workplace. You know, this is a business, um, not a place to go and talk about how we feel about things. Uh, and I think that that keeps people um, – you can do a lot of good work um, behaving like that, but eventually you come – when you, you – know, we also want people to be passionate about this company, but we don't want you to show any emotion. Um, so – in order for in order to make big decisions and then move a group forward, companies have to find ways, and companies being the individuals in the companies, have to find ways to be able to acknowledge uh, uh, their emotions and actually work with them in positive ways in order to make change. Um, I, uh, I know that you know one of my one of my favorite uh, series on this show was your interview series with John Roderick. Yeah, um, the returning series, um, and. I've heard him speak in other podcasts about uh, emotions are real. And uh, when he first said that, I was like, hmm, I sort of chewed on that for a while. Uh, and it took me a while to get it, but he's right. The emotions are real. They're real things and um, we need to find ways to engage with them. Because, you know, politics, it's really just emotions because it's all about power and power is emotional. And so we want to find ways that groups can engage with that stuff. It's not therapy, but um, I mean, it's sort of like therapy for a company, but um, find ways to deal with that stuff so we can actually just work together and work together in the most um, human way. Yeah. I know that was kind of rambling, but uh, I, I, I love it. I, as, oh. as a, uh, as, as someone who is inherently bad at such situations, uh, someone who doesn't, who wants to remove other people's feelings so that he can get down to brass tacks, but does not know how. I, I, I find this whole, the whole concept fascinating because it, I don't know, it's what I naturally want, but I never know how to get there. So. Well, that thing, that, acknowledging that's probably like, that's a huge thing, like right? able to say, but I want that because I think everyone wants that. Even the person who's like, I oh, just give me the project plan. <laughs> stop stop speaking to me about your emotions like i think that person desperately wants to be able to go i'm scared i don't know how to do this thing i don't know and that's and like for a group to acknowledge we don't know how to do this and amongst their peers who are often they're, they're sort of tacitly competing with is and then being able to move through that and say actually this is what we're going to do I mean, there's sort of some of the more famous stories about this work involve people acknowledging that, hey, if we do this, my department is going to have to close. Um, you know, if you see like um, I've done work with mergers and some people saying, well, someone's going to have to lose here and people understanding what, what the right thing is for them. And then, you know, finding ways to say, well, you know, you may be leaving this company, but we can f- we'll help you find other work. Um, that's, that's good work um, in, in the sense of, being able to find ways to acknowledge what that feels like 
um, and have empathy and then work with that. Uh, that's when I that's why I get the most out of this work is when people find ways to just be human with each other in yeah. work, which is like, yeah, it's it, surely everyone wants that ultimately. Well, all right. I, I applaud, I applaud your work, especially given your personality type is different from most facilitators. I know I am. Are I, most of them sort of more of them intuitive. Yeah. And, yeah, and okay. you're, you're closer to my personality type and the fact that you do this and do it well, that is, I, I applaud that. Oh, it also you. gives me hope. So that brings us then to the top three picks. Yep. These will go back and forth. I'll try to keep mine short so you have some time. Um, but you first. Okay. So uh, my first pick is a book I'm currently reading. Um, it's called Deep Work. Um, and I don't think it's been a pick on this show before. Um, by a guy named Cal Newport, who's, um, I think he's, I think he describes himself as a theoretical computer scientist. Um uh, but the the book itself is about uh, finding focus in uh, an age of distraction. Uh, so the first half of the book, which I've just finished, is um, why is what is deep work and why is it a thing we should pursue? Um, and the second half, which I'm about to start and pretty excited about, is what are some of the practices that um, uh, an individual can can you know do to actually create focus in their work? And because this is a thing I really struggle with, is staying focused and not allowing myself to get distracted. So um, that's, that's, that's it. Did you hear the episode uh, with Luke Bedwine? Uh, uh, remind me about that one. Episode, I think, 179. Uh, he, he was the, he's the guy who wrote My Sleep Button. Uh, he does... Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, yeah. Cognitive oh, the random, the random Is that the one with the random... Um, it just says words? Yeah, basically neural disruption really, kind of... Yeah, okay, I, I remember that. I yeah, remember he that talked out. about deep yeah. work. Uh, he he oh, okay. actually has done uh, a lot of writing and, and work in that area. It was not a top pick. You're correct about that. But, um, yeah, that's where I first heard about deep work was from him. This does yeah, sound fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting sort of anecdotes in it. And um, I don't know, as I'm reading, I'm going, oh, man, that feels like me. Like, yes, I recognize that that temptation to jump into um, social media or what is happening in the news. Um, for a long time, like in the, at the end of last year, in the beginning of this year, I, I found myself getting very um, distracted by what was happening in US politics. <laughs> hey, me um, too. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and uh, because, you know, from... from distance from australia it's it's it is like for me at least it was compelling and um but i was so distracted by it that i started to think about ways to how do i how do i actually stay with uh, a topic for a long period of time um you know when i'm doing sessions most of the activities run for um you know in the in scan phase you know 20 or 30 minutes and then they may be you know 60 minutes on the, on the focus phase um so actually just working on a problem for hours um in a, trying to just stay stay with it is um, something I've. I feel like I when I was programming I can find it there, but in other forms of work I struggle with it. Um, I've done GTD, the getting things done for sure. years, um, and that's that's helped me be very organised in it. But this is this feels like it's something else. This feels more about like well, yeah, you can create the lists and you've got it all there, but how do you? Some problems uh, will eventually get down to. Um, Here's a specific task 
you need to do, but some problems need to be just progress on this thing. Yeah. And those are the ones I really struggle with. Did you ever, did you hear the, uh, the episode with David Allen? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. You, you've listened to oh. it a lot. Wow. Uh. Yeah. He, uh, I, I love hearing him speak actually, because when he speaks and he sounds so calm, mm-hmm. like it sounds He's so, so different from all the people that espouse GTD. Isn't he? Like, he's just like this. <laughs> yeah. He, like people say, how do you do this thing? And he'll say, well, if you want to do it, you'll do it. And it's like, wow. Yeah. He's a, he's a very, he's a fascinating guy. It was, um, yeah, I was, th- I found that conversation very enlightening, uh, be- pretty much because he was so different from the people that are really, really like, uh, dedicated to his methods. He, yeah. He just had, a, I mean, it wasn't that he disagreed with any of them. It was just a personality difference. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, that his, his, well, when I hear him speak, he reminds me of something. Someone told me about my work, um, when I started doing it and, uh, as a boss of mine and he said, um, look, this is like jazz. <laughs> like some people see it and they go, ah, oh, I hate this. I don't, I don't get it. This is, this is dumb. Uh, and some people go, man, I love this. This is cool. How do I play jazz? And then they first start seeing like music theory and they're really struggling with it. And they go, I'll never get this thing. And this happens to people who are practitioners in my way in the work I do. Uh, and then they get to a place where they go, ah, I've got it. These are the rules. This is jazz. These specific things is jazz. And Which then is kind of antithetical few... to jazz, but yeah. Yeah, and then the, the people <laughs> who really get it kind of move beyond that and they get into, I'm going to play with this a bit. And I, I, understand, I have a deep embedded understanding of it and I don't need to go and it's not about um, procedure anymore. It's just about a, a kind of way of being. And that's what david allen sounds like when he talks about gtd yeah. which yeah. he invented it so uh it makes sense but you know he sounds like it's so embedded in him that it isn't he because he's timid you know, i'd say he'd go look use whatever tool you want <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yep. write it on a wall if it works but um <laughs> it, it's not about like i use omnifocus i used to do like whatever the, it isn't about any of that it's about something much deeper than that yeah i actually remember asking him that question and i got that response um, yeah, because he uses Lotus Notes, doesn't he? Some kind of customized Lotus Notes. Yeah, I, I don't remember now, but it was horrible. It was something I was not, uh, I was not prepared for. Mm. Um, all right, so my first pick will also be literature. Um, I'm going to, as a very general pick, just choose Ray Bradbury. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My dream last night was extremely Philip K. Dick. We've already talked about Asimov. Um, or, you know, at least in passing here. But uh, but I have been going back through Martian Chronicles and Illustrated Man lately. Mm-hmm. And Bradbury's vision of the future, you know, at a time when it, it was it was still conceivable that you could travel through a few solar systems in a day and come back with space dust yep. from multiple places on your shirt. Like, this uh, kind of unfettered idea of what space travel would be like uh i still delight in reading that and uh i think anyone anyone who's interested in sci-fi but knows more roddenberry than bradbury um Mm -hmm. should go back and and read this stuff it's kind of amazing the um i remember watching the martian chronicles tv series um as a I, kid, I have heard this existed. I do. I've never seen it. And uh, so, when I think of Ray Bradbury, I think of that aesthetic, that sort of seventies sci-fi aesthetic. Um, <laughs> uh, 
which I still really like. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And I also remember I had a, uh, I think it was Commodore 64 game um, called, uh, based on Fahrenheit 451. Um, I never. Or 451. Yeah, I, I never saw a game. Wow. Yeah, I, it, I think it was actually a sequel to the book. So it's set after the book. Um, uh, and I remember it was one of the, I remember it because one of the few, it, it was a text-based adventure. So, um, you know, you would type away. Yeah. And then read the, read the description. The caging would be a graphic, but it was, that was more of the exception than the rule. Yeah. Um, 1984. I just found the, the Wikipedia page on the Fahrenheit 451 video game. Yeah. Um, so I'm a, I haven't I haven't read a lot of his stuff. I did read the Martian Chronicles as a kid as well. I remember loving them. Maybe I should revisit them. It, it, well, and that was specifics. that was my case as well. I read them as a kid and hadn't gone back to them until I was in my late thirties. And yeah, it's still it's still just as delightful. Yeah, and it, yeah, there was this kind of um, uh, mundanity to the way he talks about travel and some space traveling. Yeah, that. it's like I'm getting on the shuttle to go to Mars to do a, you know, whatever. Yeah, I got to jump and, on the rocket tonight. I'll be back. Uh, I'm going out for a pack yeah, yeah. of like intergalactic cigarettes, and then Dad never comes home. And yeah, well, and there were there were all these social, just like any good science fiction, all these kind of social issues abstracted into far more. Uh, <laughs> Uh, fictional situations, I guess, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, and I mean, that's uh, yeah, and is it Aldous Huxley Brave New World has a yeah. similar kind of aesthetic to it. That, well, like, um, like I said, all all good sci fi throughout history has had that capability mm. and and impact. If you look at any like classic sci fi, whether it's book or movie or TV show. They are addressing social issues that we have now, uh, like Star Trek from its inception, conception, has always addressed current social issues in a way that is almost so abstracted that you don't realize what they're talking about. But it does a lot what you're talking about by removing the immediate politics and emotions from a problem, putting it in a new setting, and then letting people look at it from a distance. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I have to confess, I've never seen an episode of Star Trek. What? Yeah, and look, I consider myself, I, I, I self-identify as a nerd. Um, but yeah, this is, it's just never, it's, and look, it's one of those things that I'm not anti-Star Trek, it just never occurs to me. That, so I know, I know there's a new TV series coming out. Um, uh, I think there is, is that right? Like um, uh, Star Trek? Yeah. I honestly yeah. don't know. I just recently went back and started uh, The Next Generation from episode one and working my yeah. way through it. I've seen exactly zero episodes of that. Uh, so I've heard it's good. Um, I'm, I'm not going to tell you to prioritize it over Martian Chronicles, but it, it, it is, it's fascinating. Okay. All okay. right. So um, what's your second pick? Uh, second one is, um, it's called The Ringer. Um, and what it is, is it's a chainmail scrubber for cast iron um, fry pans or just what? cast iron cookware. Um, which I don't think, again, I don't think this has been a pick. But so uh, my wife, well, when we met, she was a vegetarian um, and she was a vegetarian until just after the birth of our first um, son. Um, so she was a vegetarian for 16 or 17 years. And then she decided, she decided that, um, uh, you know, I want us to be able to have family meals and I want Harrison to be able to eat um, 
you know, if he wants to eat meat, I want to be part of that. So she decided to stop being vegetarian. And I, uh, and this is, you know, this is why I self-identify as a nerd. I thought, I'm going to see if I can make her like the best steak. Uh, <laughs> and so I started looking into this, you know, got on the internet and looked around and um, discovered um, sous vide cooking. And I thought, oh, okay, this is a thing I could get into. Uh, so, you know, take a steak, bag it up, cook it for a long time in a very particular temperature. And uh, then, t- you know, uh, get it out there, pat it dry and sear it. And the, and the searing part was the part I was struggling with. So, you know, I started looking into that, how do you get a good sear? And everyone's saying, get cast iron, get cast iron. Um, so uh, I um, bought a Lodge cast iron pan which is great and it's super cheap. Um, and uh, then someone said, in order to clean it, the best thing you can get is this thing called the rigger. So it looks like it's just a bit of chain mail. Yeah. Um, just links together. And after you've cooked in it and you've, you know, you've, I think one of the nice things about cooking with cast iron is um, it's okay if you kind of get stuff burnt on it um, because it's pretty easy to clean with this thing. So get it under some warm water and then you just get this and you rub it across and it just scrapes all the bits off. And uh, it doesn't scratch it, and um, it's, it makes it really, really easy to clean it all off. And uh, then you just chuck the ringer itself in the dishwasher, and there it is. It's ready for the next time. Um, and it's not too expensive. Um, you can get them on Amazon, and uh, it's great. It's a great little. It's a great little tool. I use it every time I use cast, uh, every time I cook with cast iron. And you know, and uh, my wife Gemma, she loves steak. Turns out uh, she went from being a vegetarian <laughs> to going. I think I kind of spoiled her though, because sometimes we'll go to a restaurant and she'll go, This isn't as good as you can make. And yeah, uh, I, I actually am proud of that. I, I was vegetarian for 17 years and then uh, steak and bacon drew me away. Uh, that and a lot of there were there was a lot of information that I learned, uh, but I did. I, I got into making my own steaks and love them and have found mm-hmm. in the process. I don't order steak at any restaurant that doesn't specialize in steak because I am always disappointed. Yeah. And even if I have actually, a good experience once, if I go back and try it again, then I'm disappointed. It's, uh, it's hit and miss. And with, uh, with my own methods, I can generally hit. But, okay, so I didn't know the ringer was a thing. I just ordered it like while you were talking great. because I have multiple cast iron... Uh, pans and and grill pans and uh i i have always i've always uh labored over the idea of how it, what's the best way to clean uh without uh scratching or or you know ruining seasoning or causing any rust this is amazing all right this is this is amazing and this, this is going to make a huge difference thank you for this one yeah it's cool um yeah, there's actually a restaurant in Sydney that uh, uh, has two menus. It has one menu that is a sort of normal a la carte menu, and then it has the um, steak menu, which is the most pretentious title. I think, it, I think, and I may be getting this wrong. I think it's called. I think the menu title is a study in beef, and, <laughs> and like, it's ridiculous. And the steaks are super expensive. They are amazing, but it is like the most pretentious title I could imagine for like describing you know ordering cooked meat. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, that is, I think, uh, the general, if you go to a steakhouse in, you know, like San Francisco, New York, uh, it, it feels very pretentious and the, by feeling pretentious, then they have to earn the right to be pretentious. Yep. 
And if uh, so, everyone's expectations are super high when they bring it out. If it if it fits the bill, though, then it's even better. You're like, oh, hey, they weren't just being snobby. All right. Um. So my second pick is going to be culinary as well. Uh, mm-hmm. I wrote an article last week on my blog about the best cheap stuff in my kitchen, like a bunch of things under 20 bucks that had actually been worth buying even at a low price. And one of them was this rather uh, generic 2LB depot. It was a set of stainless steel st- stainless steel measuring spoons. Uh, mm-hmm. And they fit certain criteria that I wanted. And one of the primary criteria was I needed to be able to fit it into spice jars easily and not right, have to sit yeah, and try I, I to tap spices out into a spoon. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. So these are very narrow, long, but still deep spoons. And uh, they have been perfect. They come with, uh, the set comes with a level, just, you know, a, a, a little steel bar that you can use as you pull the spoon back out of the spice jar. It'll level it and you're ready to go. No tapping, That's shaking. Cool. Yeah. I am rather enamored with them right now, and they were fourteen dollars, which is about the same price as your first pick or your yeah, second that's, pick. So yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's uh, I, I completely uh, I completely understand the, the problem. You get these little jars. This is one of these great problems of alignment. Like <laughs> the spice, the spoons are like you know kind of round and big, and and the jars have tiny tiny little openings on them. So why is that? And uh, uh, you can look at it and say it's clearly a conspiracy to make me waste spice. <laughs> Or more likely, it's those two, those two organizers, those two, the two systems that make those decisions have never spoken to each other. Right. Um, but one person's <laughs> gone. Hang on, this is a really easy problem to solve. Yeah. And uh, they've seen the connection. But yeah, completely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's that's cool. I'm going to get that. Yeah, I'll uh, I will link them. So, what's your third pick? Awesome. Uh, third one is an app, uh, and this is an app by an Australian company. It's called Sunseeker. Um, and this is like a really, it's like a, one of these apps that I, I don't use it that often, but when I do, I always go, man, this is so, this is exactly what it needs to be. Um, and I found about this, I was at a cafe once waiting for someone, I could hear these uh, two these women at the next table were talking about this app, and this woman said, this is just a great app, I just use it really occasionally. Um, and what it really does is it just really maps the sun in a location. So um, an example is, uh, let's say you are planning to plant a garden and you want to know what light is this plant, is this garden going to get throughout the year? Uh, and so you look at this app and it will go and you can move a little slider to show where it is in the calendar year and it'll show the, the path of the sun um, throughout the year. And you can see how the sun moves, you know, from summer where it's kind of um, a much broader arc. Um, it also has augmented reality, so you can and I wouldn't recommend doing this, but you can go and point it up at the sky and see if you can find where the sun is. I mean, you can do it in a room and that can be useful. Um, so I've used it for plant, for planting a garden. Um, we bought our first house last year, which um, for any Australian listeners will appreciate how hard that can be. Um, so Australia has some um, fairly unaffordable real estate. Um, and, you know, part of that decision is saying, what's the light like in this house? And being able to just sort of, you know, here we are. Let's see what, let's see how light moves throughout the year. So where are we going to get light? Is it going to be back? Is it going to be the front? Whatever. Um, and I've also used it in, in sessions to go and say, well, where should we put this to maximize light at this time of day? Because if we do it here, we're going to get light coming right in through the windows and people are going to get blinded. Um, so it's cool. It's, just, it's not 
super cheap. I think when I bought it, it was twelve ninety nine Australian. So usually that would be um, based on App Store pricing. Usually about ten dollars US. Um, does this one thing? Does it really well? It's really really ugly. Um, I don't think they've updated the interface ever. Um, it has another one called Moonseeker, which does that for the moon, um, and Windseeker, which I don't have. Um, but it's cool. It's a cool little app. I pull it out occasionally uh, whenever I need to go and say you know, one of these questions, and it does exactly that one thing really well. That is, yeah, I'm actually uh, very, this is actually worth the nine ninety nine to me. Uh, I live in the unglaciated territory of Minnesota, uh, mm-hmm. which is one of the few parts of the Midwest that are is very hilly. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. If you if you have property here, there's a good chance that you see the sun for fewer hours than the sun is actually in the sky. Mm-hmm. And uh, people who live in mountains are used to this idea, but uh, for Midwesterners, this is abnormal. And planting a garden can be um, an arduous planning task to figure out exactly when and where you can plant what. It would be cool if this interfaced with like a catalog of different plants and, and light requirements. And then you could just walk around with augmented reality and see exactly, exactly how much uh, light through a day and across a season you were going to get. Yeah, well, maybe. Um, I have no idea. Like, it doesn't seem to be updated very often. Um, but you know, the new uh, version of iOS is iOS 11 has the augmented reality um the vr kit. stuff yeah ar yeah. kit is that what it's called yeah, um, yeah so maybe maybe they'll maybe if that gets easier maybe the developer will do something with that that'd be cool um, um, i agree i think it it does feel like something that could go a lot further i um, will note that it was last updated on tuesday of this week really how about yeah. that <laughs> about bug fixes and enhancements um, I, I don't have the release <laughs> notes but it does say uh, updated june 20th 2017 Ah, cool. Uh, so maybe it's an active development. That's that's awesome. Um, so it's it's this is really neat little app. Um, yeah, if you're also if you're planning a party, is it sure. going to be light here at this time of day? Yeah, but yeah, if you've got that situation where you've got hills and you want to get a sense of where the light's going to be, yeah, this likes morning sun. This likes the afternoon sun. This yeah. doesn't need to be in the shade. All that stuff. Really handy for that. Nice. Looks awesome. All right, my last pick. Uh, since I seem to be you know following you step for step Mm -hmm. uh is an ios game it's called flipping legend it's from noodle cake studios who also makes uh super stick man golf which is one of the greatest games of all time um flipping legend is a game where you are you have a row of three alternating squares uh, a column of three alternating color squares looks like a checkerboard kind of and uh you are either a ninja or a sumo wrestler or an Amazon or an archer. They're different characters and you have to kill the creatures and avoid obstacles. And you can only move diagonally. Uh, so every time you jump, it's either forward left or forward, right. Uh, then you okay. have, you have like power ups where you can then pull off like a single square backwards jump and then therefore reverse your, uh, your next jump. And if you jump off the side of either side of the three columns, you'll come out one ahead on the opposite color square on the opposite side. So like a teleport kind of thing. And it is a puzzle that once you get the hang of it, it becomes a very addictive game. Um, 
the kind that you shouldn't play in the evening because then you fall asleep imagining right, the world yeah. in series of three squares that you have to jump. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it's time, like, uh, if you go too long without killing an opponent, then you die. Uh, so you have to constantly be moving, and the faster you move, the further you'll get. And uh, and every every time you play, it's it's an endless runner kind of game. Every time you play, you start from the beginning, but once you get far enough in any level, you get a teleport, and you can spend your gold to get... You can jump back into level six instead of trying to go through five levels to get there. It's a really well-designed game for um, addiction. Like, I always look at... What is it that makes me keep pulling this game out? Mm-hmm. And I try to I try to figure out if I were going to make a game, how would I make people keep doing this? And it's not a game where you need to spend money to get anywhere. You don't have to buy gold or buy gems or anything like that. You just have to keep playing. And it is it's it, you know, it's 8-bit graphics. It looks like a three-dimensional version of an Atari 2600 game. Yeah, I'm looking at it here. Yeah. I I absolutely love it. I've been addicted to it for a couple weeks straight now, or at least a week straight. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been fun. Yeah, this this uh, this looks like one of those. Um, um, I mentioned before Commodore sixty four, which is a um, yeah. games I mostly played when I was a kid, um, and it has this looks a little bit like that, but maybe a bit more Nintendo, as you said, an Atari. But those games, you know, those those games. The graphics always because the machine didn't change during its lifetime, right? And so, and it was you know sixty four k, so not a lot of not a lot of memory in there, and so the the emphasis was nearly always on gameplay. And um, I just remember being so addicted to so many of these games. And uh, uh, this is this is the sort of thing that uh, would be the opposite of my quest for deeper working uh, <laughs> to get involved in this. <laughs> I see people on the train. Uh, playing games like this and I go oh that looks like fun and then I go no don't do it don't do it to yourself yeah because then I know that I'll spend like my train ride instead of like reading or um you know getting involved in like something else I will end up doing that and uh yeah I can see myself definitely getting addicted to something like this um so I'm not going to get this one purely <laughs> for the reason that um uh, is the reason that I know all I, d- I will do to myself because I'm specifically um, describing it as addictive. Yeah, exactly. And you know, <laughs> I, I get it. Like, because you look at if you just if you just came across this on the app store, you wouldn't necessarily be attracted to it, right? I mean, you may look at the reviews. You get four and a half stars. Okay, um, uh, that looks pretty cool. Um, like it's re- good reviews, but it's it's not. Um, it's not something that you know, visually goes, oh, wow, that looks amazing. I want to see what that looks like. You know, like, what is the one, the um, the kind of endless sword fighting one? Um, there's been a few of them. Uh, I can't remember now. It was a fighting game. Um, and if you died, then it was like the, when you came, when you respawned, you had all the equipment because you were like the child of that. Um, well, you're not talking about uh, Blade... Uh, what was it? Oh, yeah, yeah, Infinity Blade. Um, yeah. Because you see that and you go, wow, that looks amazing. It um, was amazing. Um, and uh, <laughs> you can see... I, I, I beat one, one and two. Play. Oh, that's cool. Wow. They're not, so they're not endless Blade. runners. There, there, there right. isn't... Well, no, when you... Okay, I beat it in my mind, but as soon as you beat it, then you get, like, respawned and, yeah. Right. Uh, you could play it forever, but I had to draw... 
and oh, say, okay, I have accomplished what I wanted to. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that looks cool. Um, um, I'm not going to play it. Just, I'm not going to get it just for, purely for the reason that I will just end up playing it. It has a gift sharing as well. And, and, and you would. GIF sharing, sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a GIF guy. Or no, I'm a GIF guy. Oh, my God. Yeah. I've gotten into the argument so many times <laughs> I've forgotten how I kick. I don't even care anymore. <laughs> that um, happens to me. I, I will note that, that this game well. with 2,613 ratings has an average rating of five stars. Okay, that's that's pretty good. That's, that's pretty impressive. Good. <laughs> okay, so okay. anyway, we'll we'll wrap up. Um, you can be found on Twitter at at Dean Prebetic, D E A N P R I B E T I C. That's right. And uh, anywhere else you want to be found? No, I think that's the easiest place to find me. All right. Um, yeah, just I'm, I'm actually I've just been on a social media holiday, but I've just come back from that. Welcome back. Thank you. And Thank you. I Thanks am. for your time. Sorry, sorry, what? Thanks for your time today. No, no, I appreciate you being here. Uh, I'm Brett Terpstra. I am at brettterpstra.com. And you can find me as TT Scoff literally everywhere else. And uh, yeah, so that was episode 196. Thanks again, Dean. Thank you. And uh, thanks for all you do, Brett. You do a, you do a huge amount for the community. And uh, I'm a big fan. Oh, Thank you. Thank you for saying that. You're very welcome. Uh, And we'll see everybody in a week. Thanks for listening. Mm